24-hour video. This is a podcast where I talk to people that I find interesting. We talk about films and whatever else comes up along the way. I'm your host, Jason Green. 24-hour video. My guest is author Sam Lipsight. I first came to know Sam's work when I was on tour in one of my bands, Orchid or Panthers. I can't remember which at this point. We were deep in the stinky guts of our van, and I'd either read the books I had packed or was sick of what I was reading and started to peek at what detritus my tour mates had brought. This wasn't uncommon, as I would often bring these ridiculous tomes that I thought being trapped in this can would force me to read. Instead, I would just eat chips, drink regional sodas, smell farts, and pray for death. In this instance, it was our drummer, esteemed author in his own right, Jeffrey Selaney, who had a copy of Sam's second novel, Homeland. If you don't know Homeland, you should. It's about a man named Lewis Minor, a.k.a. Teabag, who sends candid and confessional life updates to his high school alumni newsletter. It was one of the first times I remember actually laughing out loud at a novel. Sure, I've had my fair share of smirks and occasional guffaw, but Homeland was the first full-on annoy your bandmates on a long drive to Tulsa laugh. Smart. Dark a world populated with equal wonder and disgust for existence. He says, Go forth. Be your own disappointment. There's a whole wide world to fail in. How could that not resonate with a young man who, instead of succeeding in academia, has spent his time screaming in basements and VFW halls and sleeping with his head nestled next to strangers' litter boxes? A musician friend told me that he knew Sam from the old days when he was the front man in a band called Dung Beetle. Sam sang for a crappy band in crappy places for crappy people. He was one of us. I should have known as soon as I read the line, we're going to eat ice cream and we're going to eat shit. The trick is to use a different spoon. Sam has a way with language. In fact, if you've never read his work, or even if you have, listen to one of his audiobooks. Sam reads them, and to hear the language, how Sam imagines it in his head adds a whole new dynamic to the work. And I know that sounds annoying, but it's the truth, and the truth is often incredibly annoying. The first time I met Sam, I was nervous, and he chided me for doing bits from my stand-up. He was one of the tens of twenties of people to actually see those clips on YouTube. It was weird, flattering. 
He also told me a story about meeting up with a famous actor to potentially work on a project and described the actor as smart for an actor, dumb for a Jew. I liked Sam immediately. I liked him before I met him. I still like Sam. He's the smartest, funniest guy in the room. He seems to find life equally parts incredibly stupid and incredibly amazing. And I have to say I agree. I'll be posting notes from the show. You'll need them. So many great recommendations by Sam. This is the first episode, first interview. Sounds a little weird. I hope you enjoy it. If not, you know, go fuck yourself. This is 24-hour video. Um, so what are you watching now? Well, I've watched a lot of bad television during this pandemic, like most people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wasn't even watching that many movies. I think I was watching a lot more television. I was watching uh, that horrible show with Nicole Kidman that became a show I watched with my wife. The Undoing. You know, there's right. Yeah, there. So there. I mean, there are different categories of tell stuff. You know, when we're all in the apartment. There, you know, there's stuff you're kind of going to watch on your own. There's stuff you're going to watch in a communal way. There's stuff you're going to watch seriously. There's stuff you're going to watch um, in a sort of humorous fashion. And there's stuff you're going to, you know, I have kids, so the stuff that, I mean, they're teenagers, so there's stuff that if they deign to watch something with me, there's <laughs> stuff I will watch with them. Uh, so... There are a lot of different categories. And really, there were certain points where I didn't want anything really that challenging going on. I was, but uh, so I watched The Undoing. I did watch yeah. that. I watched uh, some, you know, I am a kind of a science fiction fan, although we'll get to that. But uh, I, uh, I watched that show, The Expanse. Yes. And uh, did you, have you ever seen that? I watched, uh, I watched most of the first season when it came when it first yeah, I mean, came out. I think most people bailed on it, but I wa I watched all of it. Um, I can't and I don't remember a goddamn thing about it right now, but I know that so this was you know got got me through a couple weeks. <laughs> that, that, and, this was uh, what you would call your solo watching for the experience. That was definitely solo watching, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and lately <laughs> and these shows are really bad. I mean they're silly. But and I'm not even, gonna, I, you know, I hate the phrase guilty pleasure. I mean, all pleasure, maybe all pleasure should be guilty. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's guilty. There's guilt involved, but not a lot of pleasure. Let me put it that way. But uh, I still feel compelled. I've been watching uh, that. Netflix brought it back, that show Turn about Washington spies. Oh, yeah. Which is. Okay which is, you know, also pretty ridiculous. That show I really like because everyone's doing all these different accents that don't jibe. But so, like, let me think about it. A film that I watched recently was uh, that, oh, the, the Charlie Kaufman movie. Did you oh, see yeah. that? I'm thinking about ending things. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That is one that I haven't pulled the trigger on yet for unknown reasons. Because I like everyone involved, but there's something about the trailer. Well, the Jesse Plemons is is uh, he's quite good. Actually, everybody's fantastic. really good in that. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, it's the acting is fa is fantastic in that film. It, it gets kind of annoying after a while. Um, so, it, and actually, um, 
I was reading about the the book and the way it, it sort of diverged from the book, but I can't remember now. Um, anyway, this is the amazing thing about having this kind of conversation at this moment in in history is what a fucking blur everything is. Yeah, and uh, I'm realizing now that I've probably watched probably had more screen time than ever in my life in the last eight months. And so much of it just blurs together. And, um, and I'm not sure if it was a movie I watched or a trip to the grocery store I took or something <laughs> I said to my family, if it was a scene in a movie or a scene in my kitchen, it's all. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. So your quarantine style has been mainly television and television. That's been sort of, segmented by who you're sharing the couch with? Yes. Um, that's exactly it. And I don't really go, I don't really watch stuff on my laptop and I don't know why it's just, and I think it's just a generational thing. I mean, I watch clips and things, but I don't want to generally watch a movie on my laptop. Yeah. I feel similar. I like the, I, I like the bigger screen. Um, and then, you know, my, it's tragic. I, you know, I want to share golden age cinema with, say, for example, my 16-year-old son, and I'll mention a movie, and he'll say, oh, yeah, I saw that on my phone. And, uh, <laughs> like, Chinatown or something. <laughs> and, uh, okay. I mean, okay. I saw, yeah, Lawrence of Arabia on my phone. I saw Lawrence. I mean, I don't know if that's an example, but, you know, I, there was something recently that was some... You know, something that really deserves a large screen and he'd seen it on his phone. I guess it doesn't matter in the end. Um, but you, uh, So what's your feeling in terms of, because during quarantine it's been similar for me and my wife, Emma, we watch a ton of just reality TV together, Real Housewives and all that kind of stuff. And then... Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah? I can't watch any reality television. I have no, I have, yeah, I mean, I know that I'm, I'm in a, in a minority with that, that uh, everybody is really getting a lot out of reality television right now. And I can't deal with it at all. I've never been able to watch reality television. Um, I, I just, it's, I know, I understand why it's great, but for some reason I'd rather watch some, you know, badly scripted and shoddily acted you know, by the numbers drama, you know, shat out by stars, then, uh, then watch a, you know, a reality show that probably has, you know, incredible uh, revelations about, you know, human character. Well, I mean, partially, and also watch I, I realize that it's a way for my wife and I to just, we just talk the entire time. You know, we sit down for dinner and we just make fun of them and we, we, talk through the yeah. entire episode there's no need to pay attention to anything everything's recapped every two minutes you're never lost <laughs> and it's an easy way again it's the, it's the equivalent of like taking a xanax or yeah you know, smoking weed or something it's just it's it's just this brain numbing relaxation i find um yeah no no i i get it i mean i just Sure. I like I like to numb it in a different way. Sure. Like you know, sure. you like meth, I like coke or whatever. You know, it's. <laughs> I 
I'm not. I'm not acting. I'm not acting morally superior about it. No, no. I mean, I. But I. I have yeah. that same issue with 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 the new this golden age of television where I just get so frustrated by it. Um, I would, in that sense, I would rather if I have to give my full attention to something, I'd rather watch a film. Yeah, and also but, I, I think we're out of the golden age. I think we're into the maybe the silver or maybe the bronze age. <laughs> what was the golden age? <laughs> um, I, you know, the Wire, Soprano, like that. I think that right. era. Yeah. Um, it just there's so much. They're just pumping out so much stuff. Um, yeah, I heard an interesting interview with Joel Cohen where he said that it used to be you'd sign a contract and they would have a time limit for your film. It couldn't be over this amount of time. He said, now you sign a contract and it said, you have to give us at least this amount of content because it's just right. this yeah. gaping maw that needs to be filled. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care. They don't care. They, they just need, need more shit bricks. What kind of movies were you? Were you like? Were you into movies when you were a young kid? Yeah, I love movies. I've always loved movies, which is why I don't even I don't even understand why we've just been talking about television this whole time. But I loved television too. <laughs> I just I feel like the I feel actually feel like the we were losing the the two hour or one and a half hour, but I guess it became the two hour film it's gone it, it is it is basically gone yeah the feature film is is gone and I, I i love the form it's like loving short stories or something you know i love the form and it's sad to see it go well this is another thing that i another great joel cone quote i heard he said a film is a beginning a middle and an end and a tv show is a beginning a middle a middle a middle a middle a middle until it exhausts itself yes. or you it gets canceled and I, I think there is a succinctness to film that is very appealing. And also, you know, that's why the miniseries, I think, is, for me, been the thing I'm more drawn to on television than... Yeah, I mean, a film... Series. Yeah, I like the miniseries. The miniseries is maybe... Like, if a film is a short story and a miniseries is a novel, then this, the regular series is like a new roommate who comes and lives for a couple months and then goes. Or one of those endless science fiction series that are every yeah. book is about 400 exactly right exactly and it only gets good at book four well i wanted to so i wanted to ask so when you were a young man yeah what kind of films did you like okay well i mean so my relationship to movies was you know for, for obviously going to the movie theater as a, as a little kid and i the first things i remember are for some reason i have this very early memory of seeing the Three Musketeers with, you know, Michael York and Charlton Heston, um, and mm. it being I was it being confusing but exciting, um, and then uh, I remember just really at that point falling in love with Sitting in the Dark and watching you know watching the big people move on the screen, the big faces, you know I did I fell in love with that aspect of it as I think. Many, many millions have. And um, I, uh, 
but then, so, you know, I always went to the movies, but then we were like, my dad got a VCR pretty early on, uh, as I remember. And um, the problem was you couldn't really get any movies to play on it. And there was one, this is in New Jersey. We lived in Northern New Jersey and there was one weird little video store, like a half hour or 40 minutes away that we would drive to. And I think like at that point they weren't even renting, you know, there were just, there were maybe 20 movies there. And I remember my dad bought a couple. And so we had, I think these were bought or maybe they, yeah. So we had, I just remember we had for a long time in our house, we had these two movies and my sister and I watched them over and over again. It was like growing up in a house with two books and you just read them over and over again. We had these two movies and we had them both memorized and could do every line from both movies. And we would just sit around and do lines from these movies. And the movies were all that jazz. And wow. <laughs> and the other one was a movie that some people know about called The Stunt Man. Have you ever seen that? Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, so two questions here. Where did you grow up? And how old were you when these were the only two movies in the house? Um, I grew up in northern New Jersey, um, in Bergen County, in a town called Closter. And so I guess this is like around 1980, 81, something like that. Um, and I'm, which would make me like around 12. And, or maybe a little old, maybe a, a little older, but it was around that time. Um, and, uh, and then Blockbuster came and all that stuff and, you know, everything changed. But for a while it was, you know, it was hard to get these, hard to get these VHS cassettes with yeah, movies on them. And, and for the listeners who don't know, <laughs> yeah. tell them a little bit about The Stuntman. Okay. Well, The Stuntman is a, a film directed by, I believe his name was Richard Rush, and um, it stars Stephen Railsback and Peter O'Toole and uh, Barbara Hershey, uh, Alan Garfield. Anyway, it's about a, uh, it's a kind of Vietnam film, but it all takes place on the set of a film being shot in California at a kind of uh, coastal resort. And what happens is a uh, a guy who's a who is a Vietnam vet who's on the run because he committed a crime that we're not really sure what, about. We don't, we don't know what the crime is, but we see him in the very beginning of the film uh, running from law enforcement and uh, going on the lam, and he kind of stumbles onto a, uh, a movie set and. Uh, He's just hanging out with this with a big crowd of people on a sort of promenade overlooking a beach, and they're shooting a scene from a World War One movie. And these planes come in and smoke, and there's explosion and smoke and machine gun fire, and then somebody yells cut, and everyone starts applauding. But then we see all of the, this carnage. Something's gone wrong, and there's limbs everywhere and blood everywhere, and everyone's freaking out, and this guy's freaking out. But then he, of course, he finds out that it's all the magic of, of cinema, 
and you know he sees these everyone stand rise up out of the sand with their you know um and brush themselves off and he sees that it's all been this wonderful a special effect and um what happens after that is he uh peter o'toole is the director of this film and their actual stuntman, their real stuntman, has died in a stunt on a bridge. And they, but if they admit to the authorities that uh, their stuntman has died, they know their their shoot is going to get closed down. So they hide it and they use this guy who's on the lamb and and pretend that he is the stuntman and that the stuntman survived and that no one died. And so it's this ruse that is carried on through the film. Meanwhile, this. Vietnam vet becomes a stuntman in this movie and it all gets very kind of meta and allegorical and funny. And um, if I, I haven't seen it in many years and, but I just, I remember being, uh, well, I didn't have any choice. It became a sort of Bible for me, but uh, it was, it, it, uh, it was very formative. So that in a, uh, a biopic of sorts about a pill popping fornicating uh, choreographer mm-hmm. Were the two perfect films for a, thir- a thirteen-year-old Sam Lipside. <laughs> my my sister and I would pretend to like pop pills and look in the mirror and say, "It's showtime, folks." <laughs> that explains kind of a lot. Uh, what were so? What were your parents like in terms of how they thought about film and like what you guys were watching? It sounds like they were pretty. They were going to bring you along to whatever they wanted to see. It sounds well. Like. There were a couple. Uh, rough outings. I think I remember my parents took us to see a Kentucky fried movie. If you know what that is. Oh, <laughs> and uh, yes, I had a really <laughs> scarring experience. And I think they thought it was well. going to be a, uh, you know, just a fun comedy and they didn't realize how raunchy it was going to be. And I remember the ticket taker looking askance as my parents brought, brought us into the theater and then, you know, the third time there were, you know, naked people writhing on the screen. They picked, they grabbed us and took us out of the theater. I remember being marched out of Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah, I, that was, uh, I was allowed to choose movies when we'd go to the video store. And I, I picked that because I thought it was, you know, it was the, I think it said the, the makers of Airplane or I don't remember exactly what on the box, but led me to pick it. But there's that scene where the woman is, having sex in the shower exactly and breasts are being they're, they're banging yeah. into the yeah. glass shower yeah yeah that was a that, that is still something burned in my mind having to sit on the couch with my folks when that was happening that's it funny because that's the image me. that's the image that's burned into my mind um yeah yeah <laughs> burned into my hand as well during that time but um <laughs> Sorry, I don't, we don't need to go down. There. No, no, no. <laughs> so, what were the other? What were some of the other uh, traumatizing outings with your parents? What, so, it was all kind of accidental, or did they, or were they, did they kind of treat you like adults when it came to film? Well, they, I think they had a, they wanted to treat us like adults, and they wanted us to. Uh, they didn't want to coddle us, and they wanted, you know, they wanted us to have real artistic experiences. I think. I mean, I, I, there's a story I always used to tell about how my, this is not this is kind of about a film. My dad took me to a book, used bookstore and said, "Take you know, get anything you want." And I immediately like went to the back and found the, the novelization of the movie Caligula. 
and um, <laughs> and I opened it up, and it was just pure porn. Um, amazing descriptions. <laughs> and uh, and I closed, and I came up, and my dad was at the counter buying his books, and I brought that up, and you know, the the woman behind the counter said, "Ah, sir, I really don't think you want your son to have this book." And he was kind of caught because he was, you know, a free speech warrior and so forth. And he, uh, against banning books and, and so forth. And so he said, you know, my son can read whatever he wants to read and made this big speech. Um, and then <laughs> I probably read that book more than any other book. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had, a, I had a similar thing with my, with my parents, where they would, where they were very strict about the films I watched, but they were, they did not care what I read. I could read anything I wanted, and uh, I remember going to the bookstore and just finding a science fiction book, and it was about a an alien robot whorehouse on Mars, <laughs> and buying it, and reading it, and reading it, and reading it. Um, and films I wasn't allowed to see, like I had a novelization of Child's Play three. <laughs> really? <laughs> because it was, yeah, because it was a film that I wanted to watch that my parents had forbade me to see. Um, so you you read the novelization before you saw the film. I've actually never seen the film. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the. But I've read. I had the, yeah, I have that novelization of of Spaceballs because I was obsessed. Oh with my god! That was. God, I wonder who wrote that. That's a. That's a. Yeah, I'd that's a gig somewhere around. That's some gig, that's some com gig. comedy writer's gig. Write the novelization for Spaceballs. I've, I found that it was a way that when there was a movie that I loved, when it was sort of early and, and I couldn't just rent it when I wanted to or see it, you know, there's no streaming, I, I would buy the novelizations a lot. Um, that was sort of a, a thing, and it was kind of a way to relive the film. Uh, yeah. I read them a lot. Did you do that? with other movies or just Caligula? Mostly just Caligula. <laughs> um, Have you seen Caligula? Yeah, I mean, I saw it later and was found it quite boring. Um, yeah, it is pretty boring. I mean, it's it's kind of stuck in that no man's land between, you know, a good movie, a good historical drama and pornography. Yeah. It's neither it it's neither one or the nor the other. Right. It should have been more porno or yeah, more exactly. historical. I mean, it's it's a pretty I mean, astounding that they got that cast production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like Malcolm McDowell and John Gilgood and people like that. Yeah, yeah. I I don't, I, I don't know the full story, but I think the um, wasn't all the porno stuff kind of added in as the, later with the um, that wasn't the initial idea, right? When the cast I you know it. I don't know I don't really know the history of that. I never really, I never really <laughs> delved because, you know, I had what I needed. I had the novelization. It's kind of funny because it, <laughs> it felt like an important book because it said a novelization by, and I can't remember the writer's name, but then it said based on, and then in big letters it said Gore Vidal. So uh, because he had written, right. he had written yeah. the screenplay. He wrote the script. So it was almost like I felt like I was reading a Gore Vidal book, but I wasn't. <laughs> So what about your your mom? Did she was she like a, a movie person too, or she was more of a, a book person? And my father was loved movies. I, I mean, my mom loved some movies, but I I have a lot of memories of watching 
movies with my dad on television. He loved Westerns a lot and, um, and other things. And I also, I have this kind of weird memory of, and I, I, I have this memory of watching him watch movies and sort of saying, oh, that's, the movie is, you know, making someone feel this and it's making someone feel that and it's making someone think this. And I, it was this weird distance I would have on it where I, I would be watching the movie, but also very keyed in on, you know, how he was absorbing the movie. If that makes was sense. Was it sort of a, in a way to think about this is how adults take in art? Was that sort of the thing or was it just? I think that was part of it. I think it was a, I think it was that was definitely part of it. I was trying to understand, yeah, how one, uh, how one appreciates art and also maybe I was trying to figure out aspects of my father, like what he responded, what he was responding to. I don't know. It was a mix of things, but it, it kind of gave me a sense of, you know, how, how audiences work. And it wasn't just about me. It was like watching an audience. It was kind of, I always remember that. What kind of, what, what sort of Westerns do you remember your dad being into? Was it sort of John Ford stuff? Well, his, his number, he, well, he loved, and I think it was like a boyhood love. He loved the movie Shane. Oh yeah. Um, and um, he loved. Uh, I don't know if he loved it, but we. I think we both liked uh, the Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember there was a there was a movie called Bite the Bullet. You ever see that? I, it sounds familiar. Do you, what, a, who, who's in that? It's a kind of. A, I think that's like Gene Hackman and oh, like an eighties. Maybe James James Coburn. It's like a late seventies, very early eighties movie about a horse race, oh. a kind of transcontinental horse race or something. I don't know. I have to, I'd have to see it again. Um, but there was a line in there I remember where this old kind of gambler guy says to his mentor, his uh, protege, uh, you know, I, I taught you everything you know, but I didn't teach you everything I know. My dad always liked to repeat that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we bonded a lot on, on those. We bonded a lot on those sorts of things. Right. Little good, like good lines from, from, and then there was he 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 wrote movies when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, and uh, yeah, a couple were produced. Wow! And, I had uh, no idea. Yeah, and there was the one that I really remember was it was a movie about the record industry, and it was called "That's the Way of the World," and it starred Harvey Keitel and Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh yeah, and, um, I know. About yeah. Oh, yeah. And Looking the... Oh, I see your dad's name. Yep. And the movie the movie came out and bombed. And oh. I think that... But then the uh, Earth, Wind & Fire soundtrack came out and, you know, went platinum or something. Right. And so then they... <laughs> and they re, I think they re-released the movie soon after under another name, Shining Star. But... Uh, it's uh it's an interesting movie. It's it's just very it's I think it's well written and the you know the music is great obviously. 
and the acting is pretty good. I think that it's just the guy, the guy who produced it, what you know, directed it, and I think that was a big mistake. And I think I didn't even think he really saw himself as a great auteur. I think he just did it to save money, and nice. um, it looks it. Right. But uh, there, there's some interesting things. But so the a funny uh, side note on that is that. So the movie bombed, but you know, maybe six months later, a year later, my dad gets these gold and platinum records in frames in the mail. These, you know, because the he was part of the movie, you know, and and his his name is actually on the album. And so he got the copies of the platinum records to, you know, hang on his wall, right? And and as as a sort of, you know, and it kind of what I took to be a kind of act of bitterness, he hung them in the like basement next to the boiler. And, um, <laughs> but what would happen was all these, not all these, but a few times, uh, the gas guy would come to read the meter. And I think there were two different times this happened. Um, and would see the albums and the next time they came, they would leave demo tapes because they were in bands. They thought your dad was a hot producer. <laughs> they thought they, they thought he was like you know a major producer because he had these <laughs> these gold gold and platinum records on the wall. They leave demo tapes on top of the boiler. So your dad was mainly a writer, but he he got into the movie industry uh, 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 for a couple. He of was films? he was a journalist. He was a sports writer. Is he's still around? He's a sports writer, journalist, and he wrote some novels. But uh, he just kind of only did a couple little things in the in the in the movies. And he, but he did write two scripts for this producer whose name was Sig Shore, I think. And they yes, yeah. and they were produced. And so, uh, yeah. But so th- then the the other part of that story is that, and I've written I've written about this. I so I, you know I don't feel bad t- talking about it, but. Uh, the movie opened in our town movie theater in our cloister, New Jersey. And, and I remember we one Saturday we were all going to go and my dad's parents came down and we had a, you know, a special meal. And then we all drove over to the movie theater and we go inside and we're the only ones there for this matinee, except for like two stoned teenagers in the front row. And, uh, you know, not that long into the movie, the teenagers just start talking to each other. <laughs> and and there's nobody else there. And I just remember my dad, you know, is making these fists and just trying to <laughs> trying to get through it, but then he couldn't control himself and he got up and stormed over and started screaming at them about how you know people are trying to watch this movie. <laughs> and I think he got the usher to like yell at them, maybe escort them out or something. But, uh, <laughs> I like now as a, you know, at the time, maybe it was, I was cringing, but, but now as a, you know, a writer who's had my own brushes with humiliation and rejection, you know, I say right on. He was yes, right so to do that. that. Fuck those kids. <laughs> So as you got older, became a teenager, 
how did it sort of like, did your, how were your tastes changing? Like maybe going into college? I got, well, even as a teenager, I, so the VCR was very important, you know? Yes. And so then I really got into it and I would just, I watched movies all the time and I, I got very interested in directors and screenwriters. And um, I had this book of, in, with interviews with screenwriters and I, uh, I remember cutting out a picture of Paul Schrader Mm. you know, who wrote Taxi Driver and uh, Raging yeah. Bull, many other things, and also directed some fine movies. But I, I was very much taken with him and his, you know, his both his work and his the way he talked about things. And and I, I remember I taped his picture up in my locker at high school, in high school, which was like a very pretentious thing to do. Wow. But, um, yeah. but I bet I was one of the few people in the late eighties to have a picture of Paul Schrader in his high school locker. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't know. There's probably a lot of, uh, a lot of girls who are just <laughs> yeah. pop idol Paul Schrader in there. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I was, I was kind of into the, into him and, and sort of, so those kinds of films and, um, and through that, like reading interviews with him, then, you know, I learned more about, French New Wave and things like that. And, you know, going back, going back in time to, you know, earlier American films and then learning more about foreign films. And, you know, I'm no, I'm no expert or anything or anything, but, you know, that's what, that's what got me looking a little more outward than just whatever Hollywood. Did you have access to foreign, like to French New Wave films when you were in high school? Was there a place you could well, go? There, did the video store I have mean, them? Or I, think, I think they had, they had, I think, well, I was not going to, you know, revival houses in the, in the city. Maybe I did once or twice, but no, not really. I, uh, and back then there were a bunch of them, you know, but. Um, yeah. I think you could get a couple things here and there, Blockbuster. Or other ways, there are other ways as well. Also, I had this, I had this giant. I remember I had this giant catalog. This is kind of like you with uh, that novelization, but I had this catalog from Janus Films, who distributed a lot of foreign cinema. Yes, and uh, and they were like these kind of lavish book with pictures and descriptions, and I would pour over that book almost almost to the point where you know. I don't trick myself into thinking I'd seen some of these movies, you know, like to this day, someone will say, someone will say, did you ever see, you know, this Tarkovsky movie or something? And I'll say, not like a movie like Stalker or something, but something earlier. And I'll say, uh, I'll be, I'll be unsure if I saw it or if I just looked at stills and read about it a lot, you know, in this. Well, that's an interesting thing that the, the change that's happened between streaming um, and well, the of, internet, the internet for sure. I mean, I I was talking recently, and I just found it at my parents' house. There was a catalog; it was almost a, a zine, a newsprint zine, called Blackest Heart Media, and it was a place that you could order VHS dubs of. Korean laser discs, stuff that you couldn't find at your local video store, things that you had heard whispers about, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, 
Faces of Death, all these kind of yeah. horror exploitation films. You could get, for and some it, reason, there was always some dude with a couple of Faces of Death cassettes. Yes, for sure. Faces of Death was kind of a video <laughs> store standard, but, but Cannibal yeah. Holocaust was one of those ones that I, you know, I'd heard these stories about, I'd never seen, and and the amount of effort I had to call this man on the phone who was a disgusting nightmare, and he sent me a VHS tape. It took me months to get. I saved up money for it, and then by the time I got it, I had so much invested in this film that I had to pretend that I enjoyed it. Right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it changed my life. It's <laughs> huge process, and you spent like you know that's a like twenty bucks or something for a teenage kid is a that's a good chunk of change. Yeah, and yeah, you have to you have to make believe that you liked it, and now it's one of those things where you know you stream thirty minutes of it, and you're like, this is dog shit. You know, <laughs> you don't have to go through those hoops. But there's this thing about liking the idea of something with cinema, with art, with music things that you didn't have access to that you just read about, saw photos of, heard people talk about. And so you're in love with the idea of the thing almost more than the thing itself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that. I remember even from, you know, I was talking, I remember in high school, I wanted to make a movie with this, this other guy. And I had read in the Janus catalog that some film was not, you know, more of a tone poem than anything else. And for some reason that really struck me. And I, you know, I remember talking to my friend, we were kind of talking about this movie we might make on, you know, my super eight. And, uh, and I was saying, you know, I really want this to be a tone poem more than anything else. And he would just look at me like, the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, no, it really has to be a tone poem. Did you make a cinematic? When you were a kid? It needs to be a cinematic tone poem. Don't you understand what I'm saying? Um, uh, well, I kind of declared myself interested in that sort of stuff and saved up, and because I knew that you know Steven Spielberg bought a Super 8 camera, so I've got a Super right. 8, ca- you know that kind of shit. And then I got it, and I was like, I don't fucking want to do anything with this. Um, I mean. <laughs> I, I realized that I don't really, I didn't really see things. Um, I wasn't that interested in, I mean, I like to uh, watch other people's images, but I wasn't interested in making images myself. Right. But I didn't, right. I didn't, when I looked through the viewfinder, I wasn't excited about framing things. I wasn't excited about the, you know, the purest aspects of film. I was, I realized that I was, loved the idea of making a movie but the last thing I really wanted to do was make a movie. I was interested in words. I was interested in theater and I was interested in literature and I was interested in words and sound and music and people talking in terms of what I wanted to make, but I didn't want to make images. I loved watching images, but I didn't want to make them myself. And that was was a big revelation because I really thought for a while that I wanted to make films. Right. Well, so so that brings me to, I, as a writer, have you, is there any cinematic experience that you feel is like really captures what it's like to be a writer or a movie about writers or writing that you feel resonates in some way? Huh. I've always hated movies that depict writing. 
I mean, I yeah. hate every movie that depicts it, but I usually hate the sequence that depicts the writing. Right, like the montage the, of the furious scribbling and... Yeah, like ripping the paper out of the typewriter and crumpling it up and throwing it in the waste throwing paper, it in the garbage. paper basket. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I mean, if you just... I mean, the only person who, you know, probably would have been able to capture it is, you know, Warhol, because it's, you know, just train the camera for five hours on somebody while they scratched at their genitals and, you know, <laughs> drink drink coffee and check their email. <laughs> like that's, you know, <laughs> that would be an accurate depiction. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's a, a movie that, I don't, nothing off the top of my head that captures well, that about, in a way that resonated with me. What about something, so, you know, there's always the, um, which I'm loathe to hear when people say that the, the, the novel is always better than the film, because there's plenty of examples where that's not the case. That's not, that's also, often not true. Yeah, go on. Yeah. No, no, that's often, I, I find that's often not true. Um, but also the, the sort of unfilmable novel. Um, is there any adaptation that either you well, thought was better than the book or that something you couldn't believe was adapted well? Well, I saw the movie first and then I read the book, but I, uh, Satan Tango. Oh. The, Bell, the yeah. Bellatar epic. Yeah. Six-hour movie. Yes. Um, I've never read the, the book. I've, I've seen the film. Yeah. Well, I saw the film, and I've seen the film a couple times, but um, then I decided to read the book. And the book's, you know, I mean, he's in a, Laszlo Krasnohorka is, you know, an amazing writer. Anyway, but um, I was, you know, I think that's an example of a great book that's also a great movie. I think there, I mean, there, there are probably other examples of that. That's just, that's just one that popped into my head. Um, but I think there are plenty of examples of, you know, okay books that became great movies. Oh, that's the main one, right? You know, Jaws and Godfather and all those books right. that are just sort of middling novels, but cinematically really translate. Yeah. But there, there's books like Under, Under the Volcano. Do you know that novel? Of, of course, yeah. Was, I've never seen, seen the, the film. Is that with Albert Finney? Yes, and directed by John Huston. Yeah, and the book itself is is um, it's hard it's hard to imagine a film version of it. Um, but I feel like he tapped into the spirit of the novel in a way that I was really surprised by. And it's a very oddball film, but it's one of those. That's one of the ones that stands out to me. That it's a book I love, and is an adaptation that isn't the same exactly, but feels close enough in its own sort of artistic statement about like a visual interpretation of what the book feels like, I guess. Right. And that's the kind of, I think that's the kind of translation that one is looking for, right? Not something so literal, but this is what it feels like to read the book. Um, exactly. Another example of that, that I, I just thought of was, uh, is Fat City. Yeah, uh, because because of John Huston, who he directed Fat City as well. That's what made me think of it, which is a you know fantastic book by a guy named Leonard Gardner. Really, kind of an un, unimpeachable book, that is really a fantastic 
movie. I don't know if you've seen it recently, but uh, I've, yeah, I, I just saw it. I just saw it about. Yeah, me too. I saw it again during quarantine and was really blown away by it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's br- it's brutal. It's bleak. It's really doesn't flinch. It's there's nothing. I mean, it's hard to imagine them, you know, making a movie with that worldview anymore. Although it seems more relevant now than ever, you know. I do think that there is a possibility. Well, now I'm not so sure. I thought there was going to be a window where we might have, where nihilistic cinema might make a return. <laughs> yeah, but not so sure anymore. But another one that I, I, I discovered recently, well, I, I had seen the film many times, never read the book, was uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh, yeah. Mitchum, right? Yeah. And yeah. the film is incredible. And the book is also incredible. Maybe one of the best noir crime novels I've read in recent memory. And it's all basically dialogue. The entire novel is just dialogue. And so it works perfectly to translate to film but they but just the 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 sort of the vibe and the tone of the book comes across in the movie so well and i i've reread the book and rewatched the film again just because i just love being in that world yeah i haven't seen it i saw the movie years ago i should see it again and i have not read the book but that's that's actually a good tip that book might be interesting it's a great you it's a great book the dialogue is just incredible um and then there's uh i had that ex- i had a, an experience with the, the piano teacher where i saw the film and was kind of blown away by the film and then i was on tour and i was in san francisco and i picked it up in a bookstore because i had someone had told me that the book that it's based on was a it was nominated for a pulitzer and i was like wow this like lurid material and it's a pulitzer prize nominee you know i picked it up and i did not find the book to be nearly wait, as compelling as wait that's film. a piano teacher is that jelinek is that her name yes it is yeah and i think that's, she won the nobel it. prize nobel prize that's right that's what i meant yes she did and yeah. the the choices hanukkah makes about where to end the film as opposed to where the book ends makes such a different impact um in terms of mood i just i found it pretty interesting the, the, the two have you read the book uh, no but you're saying the movie's better than the book that's my f- yeah that's how i feel yeah <laughs> good what about well what do you do you feel the same way about space balls <laughs> i think the film is better than the book yeah <laughs> to be honest. all the good lines take... are in there but... <laughs> really want to take a look at that book now I'll tell you one thing. The novelization of Caligula is much better than the movie. I bet that's true, actually. Um, I, f- I feel like I, literature sex is often better than film sex anyway. I, do you know the writer Jeff Dyer? I know. I don't think I do. He's a, he's a uh, British writer. He's really, uh, he's really great. He's a friend of mine. Um, he's written a bunch of wonderful books. Uh, including one called uh, yoga for those who can't be bothered to do it. But um, he, uh, he wrote these two books. The, the first one was about Tarkovsky's stalker. And, um, and the second one was about, it was a little kind of, it was a funnier book and it was about uh, 
uh, a World War II movie called Where Eagles Dare. I don't know if oh, you yeah. I ever love that. saw that. Yeah. 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 With like Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. Richard Burton. And um, mm-hmm. um, think about that combo, Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. But um, I know. It's what, what Dyer does in this book. I, I really like this. I, I feel he kind of made his own little genre where he sort of, they're short books and he tells the story of the movie as though you're watching the movie, but also at the same time as telling the story of the making of the movie and all of the, all of the background on all of the people involved. And then sort of it's cultural, you know, situating it culturally and historically in, in its moment. But he does it all in this kind of great headlong way where everything's kind of braided together. And you feel as though he takes you through the movie scene by scene while also uh, giving you all of this other commentary. And so it's sort of like watching, you know, a film with the commentary track um, in book in a but written by a really great prose writer. Oh, that sounds great. So I recommend those. But also, you know, I told him, I said, I really want to I want to do one and just like this someday. If I could figure out which movie to, if I could figure out which movie to, to pick, but I recommend both of those books. Are there other books, um, like maybe autobiographies of, of of directors or actors or, or or books about film that you like? I love. Well, I mean, it's an obvious choice, but Klaus Kinski's book is pretty great. It is amazing. I I, I wonder if that's. I guess with Kindle, it's in print again but it was it was out of print for a really long time it was very hard was to it? get a hold of yeah. yeah and then they yeah was it i mean the original was called all i need is love right and then they changed to kinski uncut or something like that yes i think that's right yeah i just remember that passage when he sees that giant woman and decides that he has to sleep with her and He's like in Turkey or something, shooting a film in Turkey, and he just starts following her, like for hundreds of miles, taking buses and cabs and just, just to meet her. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember this part of the book? Anyway, yes, I do. it could be, a, it should be a film in and of itself. Uh, Absolutely. That's my next project. Any others that you uh, that you really like? Any other books about film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you read books about film often or no? Not that often. I, I I've read a couple novels. I like like I like the the when it's done right the the Hollywood novel genre. Like uh, like Day of the Locust. Sure. Well, yeah. Or? I mean, Day of the Locust is is one of the champions, but um, some of that Bruce Wagner stuff. Oh yeah, I love him. And um. Yeah. But also, uh, what was I just thinking of before? Oh, it'll come to me. Um, but yeah, that Bruce, you know, the, the the so-called cell phone trilogy. Yes. Yeah, those are great. And did you hear about his new novel that he released into public domain called The Marvel Universe? No. Yeah, it just came out, and you just go to his website, and you click on it, you can start reading it. It was... Um, it's, it's kind of three novellas that weave together, and it's it's pretty fantastic. That sounds great. I can't believe I'm, yeah. I'm blanking on that. Well, maybe it'll come to me. There's yeah, one sorry. other book that uh, I wanted to mention. 
But anyway. The Hollywood novel. Hmm. Well, there's a there. I've been one of the things that I like to do is I have two collections of. So I have I have Richard Burton's diaries. Oh yeah, so I have read some through some of those. Yeah. Yeah, and I have Dirk Bogard's letters. Dirk Bogard wrote some novels too. He did, yeah. yeah which I've actually not read that I would like to. Well, that's another genre: is novels by uh, movie stars. Yeah. What are some of the others that you can think of? Well, there's Ethan Hawke has written a couple novels. Uh, <laughs> Sean Penn. Sean Penn's written some novels. Uh, Hugh Laurie, I believe, has written some novels. Really? Yeah. And the one guy who's not ever, I remember for 20 years I've been reading interviews with Hugh Grant, where he keeps saying he's, he wants to write a novel or he's working on a novel. So eventually that one's going to come out. That'll be big. But I, I find with the letter and the diary ones there, it's a great thing when I'm, I have a little bit of time to kill or right before I go to sleep or I'm on the toilet, just read a couple sections of the diary or of the letters. And I, I, I love it. You don't have to really, there's no narrative. You can kind of just jump in and jump out. And uh, the Richard Burton one is particularly great because he's a complete, he's with Elizabeth Taylor and he's a complete alcoholic, as is she. But, and so all he does is talk about how upset he is that he got drunk the night before. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and also Elizabeth Taylor reads his journal and often will write notes in it. Um, so he only says nice things about her and he never talks about any of his dalliances outside. But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty entertaining, I have to say. I have, yeah, I mean, I've read them. Then occasionally he'll have some kind of little philosophical aside that can be quasi-profound. And also, he's reading like three novels a day, it seemed like. He was, he yeah. was reading constantly. Uh, it's pretty amazing to be that much of a drunk, a movie star, and get that much reading done, and keep a journal. It makes you feel very lazy. Well, but that's all he's doing. <laughs> Isn't that enough? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I could parse out that day. You get up, do some reading, <laughs> right? <laughs> Write in the journal, start drinking. <laughs> I guess I'm giving him too much credit. What about all the acting <laughs> yeah. he has to do? Well, then there's that. But that's only, you know, that's a couple months out of the year, I'm sure. person that before obviously the pandemic happened were you a person that went to the movies alone if i went to the movies i went alone yeah i prefer to go alone i i i feel the same way i love going to the movies alone yeah it's, it's such a great feeling to walk go and go in see a movie and then walk out i think the last to tie tie this together the last great going to the movie alone experience I had before the pandemic was uh, Paul Schrader's first performed. Mm. I saw that at, at, in Toronto at TIFF and he was there um, talking about it and it was pretty, he's a very funny character. I liked that film quite a bit. 
yeah, I thought it was really great. And just, I saw it in, in the afternoon and, you know, in a movie theater in New York and walked out in that kind of, you know, hard late afternoon sunlight. It was, uh, I don't know if it was hard. I just wanted to say the word hard, but um, <laughs> it's probably soft, soft autumnal. I don't know. I can't even. Who the fuck knows what the sunlight looked like? But I do remember that. I like that feeling of coming out. It's still like light. It's like the end of the day. You've seen a movie. Yeah, um, yeah there's um, a theater near me that you can also, they will serve beer. They serve beer there. And I would go during the afternoon and have two beers and watch a movie and walk home. And I felt like a king. I mean, it just yeah. really felt like there isn't a better thing on earth. Yeah. Are they going to have movies, theaters after this? I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this, the, the, the idea that we now have a movie system where you have to make $300 million in the first weekend to have the film be profitable is just not a tenable model anymore, I don't think. And once they dump all this stuff on HBO Max, they're doing every new, like, Dune and all these big new blockbusters. I think it's going to, I'm hoping that it's going to create space for adult, middle budget fare again. There hasn't been these sort of R rated movies or even PG 13 movies made for adults that just have kind of a middling budget. They're not an action film, they're not a superhero movie. I'm hoping there's space for that again. But I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. The two-hour grown-up movie. It's not. It doesn't exist right now. It really no, doesn't. That's, the, that's really that's what I'm. You know. Right, and then so much expectation is heaped upon them when when they do, when there should yeah. be ten movies a month like that. And, Absolutely. Um, I mean, I. This is a completely different genre, but I I just watched a film called No Escape from 2005, and it stars Owen Wilson who was on the decline. He was fully declined at this point. And Pierce Brosnan, who also was, you know, still on the decline. And it's about a family that gets I've seen sent it. Sent to seen it. Yeah. So this movie was incredibly entertaining. And this is too kind of It's a little like that their... Polanski movie Frantic with uh, Harrison Ford, as I remember. Yeah, with a little more charisma. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, it is, it, it's a completely xenophobic, insane action. Right. It's, it Indo, it's like, it's Indonesia or something like that. Or Malaysia. It's unclear. They keep, they keep yeah. saying Asia. That's about it. It's like some, there's palm trees and a repressive government and weird gangsters on scooters, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. There's a, it's a coup that they're caught in the middle of this coup. And I found the movie to be so entertaining and just such a trashy genre exercise. And they couldn't have spent more than, you know, a million bucks on this thing. And uh, I, I looked it up, and it made gangbusters at the box office. Like, these are like, why right. can't we have these sort of films? I mean, it's they don't have to be heady, like just some movie for adults that is not, you know, has nothing to do with, listen, I've got, you know, you can have superhero films. That's fine. But there, there can be more. And, and I, as a grown-up man, I don't There's another movie that I like very much along the same lines, also called No Escape. Made in the '90s, I think, with Ray Liotta and Michael yes. Lerner. That's a, it's a very good movie. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a good. prison, a futuristic prison island. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. And the, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a similar it's a similar thing. You know, it's like yeah. who who are these films made for? Who are they aimed at? You mean you yeah. mean the no the genre of films known as the no escape films? The no escape movies. <laughs> There's <laughs> yeah. gotta be more. There should be maybe all there should be a whole genre of films. Each one is called No Escape, and they're completely different plots, really, and different characters. But they all are called No Escape. There's, there's one that came out this year called No Escape. So, so they just recycle these titles. That's so great. Not to be confused with not to be confused with No Way Out with uh, Kevin Costner, right? Also, yeah, also pretty good as the Russian mole. Yeah. Oh, I gave it away. <laughs> I think at this point, the spoiler is the spoiler has expired. I don't want. I don't. I don't want to spoil it for the kids. You know, the, the new generation <laughs> coming up. All right. So I'm going to ask you. We, we've. We've. I think we've done a lot here, which is great. I'm going to ask you. I want to ask you two questions. One just occurred to me because you're talking about Kevin Costner. Um, who do you think is the Superior Scott brother, Tony or Ridley? Just personal, uh, your personal taste. Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to be uh, too counterintuitive here, so I'm going to say Ridley. Okay. <laughs> totally fine. Wrong, but it's fine. It's not wrong. <laughs> the the move whereby one elevates Tony Scott over Ridley Scott is is I understand where it's coming from, but it's deeply mistaken. I think if you examine the IMDB pages <laughs> of both directors, you're gonna find yourself saying, I like this movie more on Tony's page than on Ridley's. Like what? What do you mean like what? Like what movies? All right, let's look. What movie am I going to like more? What Tony Scott movie? All right, here's the here's the thing with Ridley. The argument with Ridley is Aliens, obviously. It's the that Alien. That's a Blade Runner. Film. I know I love Blade Runner too, but I'm saying the big argument for me is Alien. It's perfectly cast. It's a perfect film. I can't imagine if you made that and made nothing else ever again, you've done great work. But He's made a lot of stinkers. Yeah, I mean, I love The Duelists. I think that's a very underrated film. Um, Gladiator. Oh, you're looking at Ridley, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I just like, I like, I like his, his ambition. King of, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. I'm sorry, I just think he's was operating on another level. But you got to look at of scope and vision you know, and, and ambition. All right, I'll look at Tony he, Scott he, now. He also made The Martian. He made that whatever that one with like where it's just a Christopher Plummer in a big room talking about his kidnapped son. I mean, he made so many just lifeless duds as well. I like Ridley Scott very much. But if you look at Tony Scott first big film the hunger very good second film top gun love it or hate top gun if you watch it now 
You see this man shot a film on a real aircraft carrier. He's shooting real jets. Like how insane that is to shoot in scope. Very impressive. If you want to, if you want to have a conversation about who's the most, who's more technically impressive for the their feats in their time, that's a different conversation. Who made oh, films sure. that? Who made films that I feel resonate more with me and I feel more connected to and I admire more, even though I find him often ridiculous and pretentious? It's going to be Ridley. It's going to be Ridley, and his name is Ridley. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's very fair. But I will say this, that if you haven't seen it, I recommend the 1980 Kevin Costner vehicle, Revenge, that Tony directed. Okay. It's with uh, Kevin Costner and Anthony Quinn. And it's a great, I, it's not really a crime film. Oh, I, I mean, I actually know that, I know, I know the novella it's based on. It's based on a novella by Jim Harrison. That's in, I think, yes. the same book as Legends of the Fall. And it's a, it, it's a great little noir film. Uh, and I think it's one that goes under the radar. But I, I, I really like that one. So, you know, just keep it in mind. Give it a stream after the wife goes to bed, you know? <laughs> All right. So my, my, final, my final question is um, a film that is considered to be a classic by almost everyone on earth that you just cannot stand at all. Well, this is what this is what I was this was going to be Star Wars. Oh, right. Yeah. I, mean, I really but you you're contending that it's not a classic. No, no, no. I think I think in this the way this question is framed this is perfectly right. I mean, most people on earth love Star Wars. I mean, that's pretty pretty clear. And yes, I would say it is a classic. I was just saying in terms of cinema, <laughs> you know, there's critiques to be made. I, I would say it's a, I think it is a, it's in the canon. I think it's, it's, a, it's okay. a classic. Yeah. I mean, if you go into, you know, if you go into a, you know, your average bar and say, fuck Star Wars, you know, you might have some problems. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I've, I've seen enough grown-up men with uh, Star Wars tattoos that, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that I listened to my friend's audio cassette that he recorded in the movie theater of Star Wars before I ever saw it. Oh, wow. But um, that's, that's possibly true. But I do remember sitting with my friend Stephen Arcella in his bedroom with like a little tape recorder and like listening to fucking Star Wars, which is the weirdest thing to do. But um, I didn't even I know it was a thing. Well, yeah, because you, you could just surreptitiously make an auto audio recording of a movie you were watching in the theater. Right. Um, and then you just, you know, in those days we had to use our imagination, Jay. We had to really <laughs> see the Death Star in our minds because we didn't have the, the privilege of a visual component. Um, uh, I mean, I love, like, as I said before, I love science fiction and I love, like, I love Star Trek. I love that whole universe. I mean, it's not about, it's just a very specific feeling. I always, I, I never really could connect to the, that Star Wars yeah. universe. That's all. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I, I, that, I that, that aesthetic, that mythology, etc. I mean, and I hate it. 
I hate every. I hate all of Star Wars. I hate the whole thing. I hate every any everything that ever flickered across the mind of George Lucas in relation to Star Wars. Like all the films, all thirty, all thirty movies, and the whole universe, and everything that it spawned. I hate it. Is is uh, science fiction your go-to genre? Is that like if there is a one genre that's complete comfort for you, what would it be? Um, no, I, I, I'm pretty genre fluid. I will. Uh, I can, <laughs> you know, I like crime stuff. I like noir stuff. I like science fiction. I like, you know, knights. I like, you know, period stuff. You know, but also, you know, contemporary comedy. Um, and then just, uh, you know, really the, like I said at the outset, you know, I, I was so seduced by the flickering lights at a young age that it's, it all pretty much works for me on some level. Well, thanks for listening, and thank you to Sam for not only agreeing to do the podcast, but to be our very first guest. Sam recently wrote a hilarious piece for The New Yorker called Waiting For To Go, uh, which kind of sums up what I think a lot of us are going through at the moment. And his most recent novel, Hark, is available in all formats, along with his other novels, The Ask, Homeland, and Subject Steve, and his two short story collections, Venus Drive and The Fun Parts. They're all great. I recommend them all. Uh, Get them wherever you buy books, just maybe not Amazon this time. The Hollywood novel Sam is trying to recall was Children of Light by Robert Stone. It's a great one. Uh, The Spaceballs novelization was written by, shockingly, R.L. Stein of Goosebumps fame. And the Child's Play 3 novel I had as a child is now selling for over $1,000 online. So I've got that going for me. I wanted to cut out the thing about my stand-up out of the intro, but it was too much of a pain in the ass, so it's still there. What are you going to do? I'll just lie in bed beating myself up about it for the next six to eight months. That's life. I'll have notes listed on the website. Uh, For the time being, you can find them at jasongreen.org. That's J-A-Y-S-O-N, green like the color, dot org. And linked on our Instagram page, at 24 Video. No numbers, all letters, 24 Video. Message me with people you'd like to hear on the pod. Like, subscribe, tell your pals. It all helps. The music was composed and performed by Nicholas Milheiser. The vocal stab at the top is Nancy Wong. For some stupid reason, I edited myself. It was dumb and I hated it. So let me know if you want to edit my podcast. And finally, I'd like to give a special thanks to Jesse Pearson, whose excellent podcast apology was an inspiration to do 24-hour video. If you like books, I totally recommend it. Give it a listen. It's fantastic. The next episode will feature Noah Reed from Schitt's Creek. Message me. Let me know what you're thinking. Tell me you love me. I love you. Thanks for listening.